0: Listener supported, WNYC Studios. It's February 1993, eight years before the 9 11 attacks, New York City. FBI agent John Antisev and NYPD detective Louis Napoli are at their desks in the offices of the Joint Terrorism Task Force in Lower Manhattan. They're not happy. How could they be? They're trapped inside a professional nightmare. They had an informant who told them a homegrown terror cell is planning an attack. But FBI supervisors cut him loose. anti Napoli had rounded up possible suspects and tried to scare them into giving up the plan. But the suspects were battle-scarred veterans of the Afghan war. Those guys don't crack. So they had to let him go. Now, on this midwinter day, the agents are on edge. Back to square one working the phones in an office just blocks from the World Trade Center. John Miller covered the New York City crime beat for NBC in the 1990s. He remembers this one day down to the weather. It's not surprising.
1: February 26, 1993 is a cold, blustery day. It's windy, it's gray, it's snowing. And at the World Trade Center on that morning... You had the 50-some-odd thousand people, you know, that made up the small city that those two towers seemed to hold.
2: I was in the office. It was a normal day.
0: Detective Napoli.
2: Working on information that we had uh, gathered on those shares, Sheikh Rockman. So we were just doing normal investigation work uh, when...
0: This is an NBC News special report.
2: An explosion earlier this afternoon... News came that there had been an explosion in the World Trade Center.
0: John Miller rushed
1: to the scene there's fire and there's smoke, and it is billowing up. The medical team that was on duty that day, just upstairs from the blast, was literally blown out of the chairs they were sitting in and picked up their gear and started to head towards what was a seemingly unending pool of victims. John Miller is live on the scene right now, John. Well, Chuck, uh, actually things are still developing here, fast and furiously. There's a police helicopter making shuttle flights to the roof to uh, remove those who were most seriously affected by the smoke. People are trying to find their way out from a building that's, you know, 110 stories tall, down fire stairways um, and through hallways. And you're watching them spill onto the street, coughing and hacking. Their noses is covered with black soot. It was chaos because you didn't know whether the fire was below you or above
0: you. You didn't know which way to go.
3: I figured that just come and find 150 dead bodies up here. We didn't think we were going to get out. We didn't think we were going to get out at all.
0: This is Blind Spot, the road to 9-11. The story of the long, strange wind-up to the attack that remade the world and the chances we had to stop it. I'm Jim O'Grady.
3: He had hurt feelings. I felt guilty for so long. You've now overstepped yourself. And we're going to do something about it. Look, it's always easy in hindsight to say it's a big mistake.
0: Episode 3 The Bomb. The assassination of Rabbi Meyer Kahana in 1990 had been the first strike in the U.S. by a terrorist linked to Al Qaeda. The World Trade Center bombing in 1993, just 28 months later, was the second. As first responders swarmed the scene, the National Security Office at the White House fixed on a leading suspect for the bombing. Ready? Serbia. This is not as bananas as it sounds. A civil war was raging in the former Yugoslavia, and the U.S. had chosen sides. American diplomats supported economic sanctions on the Serbs and were threatening to bomb their army as punishment for ethnic cleansing. So the theory went like this. A pro-Serbian group had set off a bomb in New York as a way of registering their objection. That was a thing in the 1990s. John Miller said it before.
1: New York was kind of the United Nations of terrorism.
0: With violent extremists competing to get their grievances on the air. After the World Trade Center bombing, the FBI sent its one agent who spoke Croatian to JFK Airport and told him to interview passengers arriving from the Balkans. See what you can find. As it happened, that agent was John Antisev. And he found nothing. That's really the point. The U.S. intelligence community was totally caught off guard by the World Trade Center bombing in 1993. Not since Pearl Harbor had a foreign attack like this occurred on U.S. soil.
1: Americans tended to assume that threats from overseas were highly unlikely to come to the United States.
0: That's Peter Bergen, CNN national security analyst.
1: I think that goes back to the fact that Americans have been insulated from you know mass casualty violent attacks by geography. I mean, we United States is protected by the Pacific and the Atlantic.
0: It's an idea woven into our self-mythology. Ronald Reagan was always saying stuff like this. I believe this blessed land was set apart in a very special way. As President Reagan went so far as to issue a proclamation that took America's happy accident of geography and gave it a providential spin. He declared, quote, a divine plan place this great continent here between the oceans where, you know, we'd be safe The World Trade Center bombing of 1993 was a slap in the face, a warning bell whatever you want to call it The toll was shocking, six dead more than a thousand wounded five hundred million dollars in damages But there was one guy not taken by surprise, he was watching from home, like everyone else
4: I opened the TV and boom, the bomb went off. I said, honey, I called my wife. I said, this is it. This is the bomb. They did it.
0: Imad Salem, the FBI informant who'd infiltrated the small group of jihadists that had just obliterated several underground levels of one of the tallest buildings in New York.
4: I felt guilty. There is six people died on my watch. I could have protected them.
0: Salem had known the group was working with explosives. They'd even asked him to make bombs for them. And he knew they had an expanding list of potential targets, politicians, judges, and, quote, Jewish locations in Brooklyn. But Salem had refused to wear a wire for the FBI, saying, uh-uh, too dangerous. So, supervisors had yanked him from the case. Salem had to walk away before he could find out the actual target. Now, by watching the news, he'd learned what it was. His next thought they could do it again. I'm standing on the Jersey City waterfront. It's a peaceful morning. Families with kids in strollers and cyclists are going by. And I'm looking across New York Harbor at the spot in the sky where the Twin Towers once stood. In 1993, the Twin Towers were landmarks of daily life, especially around here. You'd go about your day and you'd see them. In 1993, Ramzi Youssef stood here. He was 24 years old. And when he saw the Twin Towers, he saw sitting ducks. Yusef came to the U.S. on an asylum claim, and then he linked up with the blind sheikh at a Jersey City mosque, not that far from here, inland, uphill. The blind sheikh was an imam who urged his followers to wage holy war on the West. He personally approved Yusef's plan to attack the World Trade Center. So on the morning of February 26th, Yusef was standing right around here, staring across the water at the Twin Towers when his massive bomb went off. He took pride in his engineering skills, so he was curious to see whether the blast would deliver the kind of carnage he intended.
1: Ramsey Youssef, as a professional terrorist, knew that you don't wait around after you have set the fuse, you know, on your plot. He went to New Jersey to get his things, but he stopped, and he wanted to see if his plan would go the way he designed it which was that the first tower would begin to topple, you know, tipping over, falling like a a Dunhill lighter into the other tower, causing them both to crash down on the heart of New York's financial district, causing, you know, not just 50,000 casualties of the people inside, but thousands on the street. But that's not what he saw. What he saw was a big puff of black smoke come up from the garage, and he saw the towers were still standing, And he saw that the clock was still ticking. So he went to the airport and he got out on a plane. And he went on to his next terrorist plot.
0: So the master bomber is gone. Cops and the FBI don't know that yet. But Agent Brad Garrett, who worked the case, says they've got a hunch that more than one guy is involved.
3: The bombing of the World Trade Center had the flavor of being more... Maybe be driven by a group of people.
0: The attack occurred within the jurisdiction of the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, and that office had a brand new boss.
3: Mary Jo White, and I'm not a legacy person, but if I have a legacy, it's the international terrorism cases.
0: Veteran prosecutor Mary Jo White, previously known for taking down inside traitors on Wall Street and mobster John Gotti.
3: Organized crime cases, international drug cases, and white collar
0: She assumed her work for the Southern District would be much the same. But on the afternoon of the bombing, her boss gave her a new priority.
3: Got a call from Attorney General Janet Reno, and she made quite clear I was to take over the supervision of that investigation that day.
0: That investigation being the World Trade Center bombing. That night at 1 a.m., White convened a meeting at the FBI office on Lower Broadway. Agents Antisiv and Napoli were in the room, and they had news for the U.S. attorney. And it was awkward. They told her their informant had gotten very close to the probable bombers and had been hearing about an impending attack, but then a supervisor had dropped him from the case. Excuse me, what?
3: Look, it's always easy in hindsight uh, to say it's a big mistake. I think it was a mistake. I made it very clear to my prosecutors and to the FBI that he needed to get put back in, if at all possible. The supervisor said, oh, he's
2: going to want a lot of money. He didn't want to pay him. And I think Mary Jo White answers, I don't care how much he wants.
3: Get him back in.
0: The FBI agreed to offer Salem a bit of a salary bump, from $500 a week to a payment of a million dollars. And there would be a bonus. Witness protection. Should that become necessary for Salem or members of his family in Egypt who'd be vulnerable to reprisal? Antisev picked up the phone. I
2: called
4: the mod, and he was like, remember what I told you, John? And he said, yes, yes, but uh, I think we need you to come back. He had hurt feelings. But he knew the opportunity
2: missed, too. Imad would have been there. If the Bureau would have uh, allowed us to work him and hopefully talk him into wearing a wire, there's no doubt in my mind first World Trade Center wouldn't have
0: never happened. Working an anti-terrorism job is by definition high stakes. Screw-ups mean people die followed by recriminations that can last for years. But what else can you do besides try and get ahead of the next one?
4: I agreed to go back and I start to open my ears to hear what happened.
0: So here's the state of play. Imad Salem is back on the case, angling to reinsert himself as a mole in a terror cell led by Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, also known as the Blind Sheikh. Meanwhile, the JTTF, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, has begun looking for clues in the gaping hole beneath the North Tower, gouged out by Youssef's 1,500-pound bomb.
2: I was on scene probably two to three hours after the device had exploded in the basement of the tower.
0: FBI Assistant Director Louis Chilero.
2: The initial reaction for those that responded was it was an incredible crater.
0: Nearly 100 feet wide.
2: So I was dispatched to help coordinate the evidence collection. We began to um, send agents down to the Trade Center.
0: Initial reports said the cause of the blast was a generator explosion. But as Shilero's agents picked through the tangle of concrete and mangled rebar and shredded clothes... They found something else.
2: They came to the center of the explosion, and it was apparent that it happened in a van because the van was literally blown apart. One of the JTTF members, who was a detective, happened to work in the Auto Crimes Task Force before he got to the terrorism side, and he was an expert in motor vehicle
0: parts.
1: And he's looking down into the hole.
0: Reporter John Miller.
1: And he said, that is the rear end of a truck that was ripped off... That's the seat of the blast. And if that rear end is down there, it likely came from the vehicle that carried this bomb. And if we can get to that thing, I know where there's a hidden VIN number
0: in the rear end of a truck. The VIN, or vehicle identification number. The expert was right. The VIN was there. They found it and sent it back to the office.
2: My supervisor was in the cubicle in front of me. Gives me the VIN, says, Louie, run the
1: VIN, please. And it came back to a Ryder rental truck. In Jersey City.
0: Being rented by Mohamed Salome. Mohamed Salome, Palestinian, 25 years old. And I just went like this. The name definitely rang a bell with Antisevan Napoli.
1: He's one of the guys they've been following to the shooting range.
0: One of the guys from Antisevan Napoli's original investigation. Guys they'd followed from the Calverton shooting range to a pair of mosques. One in Brooklyn and one in Jersey City.
2: I got on the phone, and I called John. Louis was uh, beeping me, and he put down a series of 911s after it. Louis said, it's ours. I said, what do you mean it's ours? It's our people, the people that we've done doing all this work on, that are involved. You know that feeling you get when something crazy happens, like your cheeks start to tingle, and you get like a narrow tunnel vision? Your stomach is churning, you just want to punch something. And that, that's what happened to me. I said, oh my God. And then everything just rushed back into my head.
0: Mohamed Salome is known to them as are his associates. Getting his name has given them a jump.
2: Things started stirring. A war room was set up where all this information was loaded up. And analysts came in.
0: It's good to have a war room with analysts and everything and to be all organized. But it's even better to be lucky. Here's what I mean. When Mohamed Salome got his instructions in the World Trade Center plot, one of them was to rent the van that would carry the bomb. So he goes to Ryder Truck in Jersey City and picks out a Ford Econoline van and fills out the paperwork using his real name. Couple of lessons here. Rule number one, do not use your real name when you rent the van. Your name will be revealed if an investigator finds the van. Use a fake name. Rule number two, don't do what Mohamed Salome did next. Knowing the van would be destroyed and there'd be nothing to return, he called Ryder and reported it stolen. Why did he do that? Because Mohamed Salome wanted Ryder to return his $400 deposit. That brings up rule number three. If you're broke but directly connected to a terrorist attack that is right then being scrutinized by the FBI, don't delay your getaway for $400 because that gives the guys who are trying to find you time to catch up by locating the Ryder rental in Jersey City.
1: If you could throw a rock across the Hudson River from the World Trade Center, you could have hit this place. So they send agents there, and they say, Yeah, a guy named Mohammed Salome rented that truck, and it was several days ago, and then he reported it stolen.
0: So the agents say... "Well." We're not going to see him again. But the writer employee responds...
1: Oh, no, yes, we are. Because he wants to get his deposit back. So he's on his way here.
0: Mohammed Salome is about to break rule number four. Don't go in person to get the money. It's baffling, I know. But consider this description of Salome by one of his co-conspirators. He is, quote, the stupidest terrorist in the world. He is the stupidest... The stupidest, the stupidest of God's creatures. End quote.
1: So one of the agents changed into the manager's outfit and started posing as the manager.
0: And who walks in but
1: Muhammad Salome.
0: The agent disguised as the manager wants to engage the terrorist in conversation and maybe get him to reveal some more information. So he tries to talk him down from $400 to $200. And then he's like... Yeah, and I don't believe this van was stolen. Salome
1: says... Well, the truck was stolen, but, you know, I only want what is fair, because fair is justice, and, you know, I gave my deposit, but it's not my fault it was stolen, and you must have insurance. The
0: customer grudgingly accepts the $200 and walks outside. That's when an FBI SWAT team surrounds Mohamed Salome and places him under arrest. So that's settled. Well novel problems by their nature are hard to grasp and once they're grasped sometimes even harder to accept the novel problem in the world trade center bombing was fully appreciating that it was more than just an isolated crime that it was in fact a major initiative by an enemy of the united states and that its roots were international. One of the plotters, himself a veteran of the Afghan war, said the plan had been hatched in Afghanistan and brought to the U.S. by Ramzi Youssef. The bombing was the opening of a campaign. This was a war that had leaped over oceans and landed in New York. Some in the FBI tried to puzzle out the overseas connections. But as the 9-11 Commission report said of anti-terror investigations like this one, It was not designed to ask if the events might be the harbingers of worse to come. Instead, the officers and agents focused on doing what they knew how to do. Identify the perps and haul them in.
1: A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison
0: The Road to 9-11. In February 1993, a week after the World Trade Center bombing, a guy who should have scrammed out of town immediately made a strange decision. He waited around for the chance to pick up his $400 deposit on a rental van that had been turned into a bomb. His arrest allowed the FBI to start cracking the case and to start understanding that a new kind of ideological animus was moving through the world. Its adherents were galled by America's status as the one true superpower. To them, the World Trade Center was not a feat of engineering. To them, as New Yorker writer William Finnegan put it, the towers were preeminent symbols of cool, godless, Western wealth. Here's Leon Panetta, former CIA director, who was then an advisor to President Clinton.
2: When the bomb went off in the Trade Center, there was this realization that we are dealing with a whole new threat.
0: U.S. intelligence was beginning to connect the dots, but had many more to go.
2: There was no question in my mind, there was a growing sense that we were now beginning to deal with an enemy that was much harder to nail down in terms of just exactly what is the threat here.
0: While Washington was wrestling with this novel problem, local law enforcement was rolling up suspects.
1: In the wake of the World Trade Center bombing, you know, the entire Joint Terrorism Task Force was galvanized.
0: That's reporter John Miller. We're on the hunt now. They're getting search warrants, they're booming doors, they're making arrests. And remember Ibrahim El-Jabrani? He's the cousin of El-Sayed Nasser, the guy who traveled to Pakistan to pick up Osama bin Laden's cash donation to Nasser's defense fund. $20,000. The cops arrest Jabrowney in Brooklyn. Fun fact, he's carrying a fake Nicaraguan passport for Saeed Nasser, part of a plan to bust him out of prison, which never happens.
1: Federal authorities expect to make two more arrests soon. Each day brought another member of the cell who was captured somewhere. Today an arrest in Brooklyn, tomorrow another in New Jersey. We got to get them all before they flee the country, and those that fled the country... We've got to follow them to the ends of the earth until we have all of them.
2: One of the individuals that was involved in the bombing was now in Egypt at his mother's house. They arrest him, bring him in. I fly over, and I bring him back.
1: The circle is narrowing in the bombing which killed six people.
0: Turns out the bombing that killed six people was done by seven men. The ringleader, Ramsey Youssef, had hopped on a plane and was still missing. Mohamed Salomeh. The man with the van, but not much of a plan... ...was in custody with three of his co-conspirators. Another was caught a couple of years later. That makes six. So who was the seventh man? A tip came into the FBI about an Abdul Rahman Yassin. They didn't know it yet, but he'd done grunt work... ...like prepping the volatile chemicals for the bomb. Agents rang the bell of his mom's apartment in Jersey City. Yassin opened the door... And received them politely When the agents described their business Yassine said he was shocked Shocked that his friends Had somehow been mixed up In this terrible attack He said he'd be happy to give the agents The phone numbers and addresses Of the suspects they were seeking The agents then thanked Yassine And let him go The FBI even labeled him A cooperating witness They should have at least taken his passport They really should have taken his passport He flew to Baghdad the next day and is still at large. But really, Yassin was a minnow. The much bigger fish was Ramzi Youssef. The FBI and CIA were right then launching an international manhunt to go after him. And investigators were coming to believe that the biggest fish was local and that he'd been hiding in plain sight. They began zeroing in on the man who seemed to be the hub that linked the arrested suspects, the man who appeared to sit at the center of all conspiracies, the blind shake.
3: The blind shake is known to be a risk. He was preaching fiery rhetoric, anti-U.S. rhetoric in mosques in Brooklyn and New Jersey.
0: U.S. Attorney Mary Jo White led the operation.
3: He seemed to be gathering more and more followers all the time. And so I wanted him neutralized uh, by prosecuting him and jailing him, uh, hopefully, for life.
0: News outlets found the blind shake irresistible, with his red fez and ray bands and clamorous followers. They wanted to know, was he the ruthless emir of a new brand of terror? Or an opinionated but harmless elder? Was he a jihadist whose orders ricocheted around the world? or a misunderstood religious scholar living in a humble Jersey City apartment. When the blind sheikh called a press conference after the World Trade Center bombing, more than 50 reporters jammed into his bare living room. Journalist Jim Dwyer wrote that the floor shuddered every time another person or camera crew squeezed in. A reporter then asked the sheikh point-blank, were you part of the World Trade Center plot? He denied it, of course.
4: I'm saying that Islam does not condone this kind of violence.
1: Speaking through a translator, the blind Muslim cleric denounced Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak.
0: And as we know, it was Mubarak who'd succeeded assassinated President Anwar El sadat The blind sheikh had inspired Sadat's killing back in 1981. And there that day to witness it was Imad Salem who had sworn revenge against the sheikh. And now, who was the blind sheikh's personal assistant? I used to
4: go to the blind sheikh at 6 and 7 o'clock in the morning, clean up his house, cook for him, because I was his servant.
0: Imad Salem, undercover agent for the FBI.
4: The sheikh don't like to sleep in bed. So we dragged the comforter to the floor and the pillows and that's where he sleep
1: he reingratiated himself within the circle around the blind sheik you know who is the spiritual sanctioner the inspirer of these plots of this group
0: there's an amazing photo from this time i just can't get over it the blind sheik you know with his forked white beard stands with his arm looped through the elbow of a large man in a trench coat with slick back hair, Imad Salem. I was his bodyguard. Without realizing it, the sheikh had taken on his enemy as his personal protector. Salem also served as the sheikh's head of electronic security.
1: You know, when you see this footage, you see the blind sheikh and the guy who you see as he moves through the crowd, that's Imad Salem. And crucially, Salem was the
4: sheikh's concierge. We used to send faxes to Osama bin Laden requesting money, discussing logistics, and I was present so many times when he did that.
0: Salem helped the blind sheikh communicate with Osama bin Laden, then living in Sudan. The sheikh and bin Laden had met during the Afghan war, And they agreed that secular Arab governments should be toppled and replaced with Islamist leaders, like themselves. The Sheikh even told Salem to assassinate Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak. But then the Sheikh told a lot of guys to assassinate Hosni Mubarak. And anyway, Imad Salem was too busy to assassinate Hosni Mubarak. He was making contact with a fresh crop of jihadists, as Antisev and Napoli had instructed him to do. He meets
2: a guy named Sadiq Ali, who is a Sudanese national.
0: His full name is Sadiq Ibrahim Sadiq Ali. He's 32 years old, tall and elegant, fluent in both Arabic and English. He's the Blind Sheikh's translator and right-hand man in Jersey City. Very bright, very intelligent. Sadiq Ali actually was conspiring to assassinate Hosni Mubarak, and he expected professionalism from his fellow jihadists. He's the one who called Mohammed Salome the stupidest of God's creatures. But his main goal was to prove to the U.S. that, quote, we can get you anytime. When Imad Salem met Sadiq Ali, He immediately recognized his importance. Salem's opening gambit was to spew a bit of anti-American bile.
4: He said, brother, you see they arrested our brothers. I said, yeah, this infidel son of a guns." He said, we need to do something here and fast.
0: And the something he had in mind was big.
2: Imad calls us, he says, you're not going to believe this. He says, it's not over. They want to do more.
0: Next time on Blind Spot: The Road to 9/11.
4: It was heart wrenching. This man joking about destroying the Statue of Liberty. And then when a bomb goes off, all the water will rush
2: in and drown all the people in the tunnel.
3: In a 24-hour period, would have had thousands and thousands of people dying.
0: Blind Spot: The Road to 9/11 is a co-production of History. And WNYC Studios. Our team includes Jenny Lawton, Ursula Summer, Joe Plord, David Lewis, and Michelle Harris. The music is by Isaac Jones. This podcast is based on the TV documentary Road to 9 11, produced by Left Right for History, and was made possible by executive producers Ken Druckerman and Banks Tarver. Special thanks to Eli Lair, Jesse Katz, Jennifer Gorin, Bill Moss, and Celia Muller. Additional archival footage from AP Archive, ABC News Video Source, and NBC News Archives. All of our Arabic language tape was independently translated by Lara Atala. I'm Jim O'Grady. Thanks for listening. Yeah, hi Roche. <laughs> hi. Are you gonna go swimming today? No. Okay. That answers that.